0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good
2: morning, Liz. I hope you had a great weekend. I know you're happy that hockey season is getting ready to start. Um, I know you're a big Kraken fan. Um, oh, but my
1: my Longhorns are also five and zero. Oh, I think so. I'm still invested in in college football. So I'm an all seasons kind of gal.
2: Well, and I think we're pretty happy uh, with what happened here this weekend as well. You know, football um, and, and and all this. So good good week all around, and and a great week on in legal terms because we're great. It's great to welcome uh, Professor Stephanie Sherwalt for lots back to the show. She is the director of the National C. Grant Law Center um, good morning Professor Ops um, please tell us about your background and how how you came to all this
0: yeah no good morning and thanks so much for having me so yeah um, I grew up in central Pennsylvania uh, absolutely uh, loved the ocean and have a lot of uh, family memories going to the beach and so uh, wanted to work in that area. Um, so after a bit of a securitist route in uh, college, I went to law school at Vermont Law School, specialized in environmental law and was extremely lucky to um, be able to move down here to the University of Mississippi to work for the National Sea Grant Law Center as their first staff attorney and then um, became director a couple of years later and um, have now been here for 20 years. So it's pretty exciting.
2: Well, y'all do great work, and and please talk a little bit about the mission of the National Sea Grant Law Center.
0: Yeah, Yeah, so the National Sea Grant Law Center is part of the Sea Grant College program. Many of our listeners might be more familiar with the land grant system, like Mississippi State Universities and others, and Sea Grant is modeled after that, but instead of bringing university resources to the agricultural community, We work to bring university resources to coastal communities. And the mission of the Law Center is to conduct legal research, education, and outreach to increase knowledge and understanding of legal frameworks that are governing uh, the use and protection of coastal resources, and also to identify legal barriers that agencies or municipalities or other entities might be facing when they're implementing programs or trying to conduct activities,
2: yeah. And, you know, the program works with a lot of different disciplines, right? So, I mean, there's sciences and technology and policy. So how how does law actually fit in with all that?
0: Yeah, so I think of law as the link between science and technology and policy. Now, of course, in the academic realm, there's a lot of different definitions of policy. But for the National Sea Grant Law Center, when we say policy, we're talking about like our aspirational goals for what we want our communities or organizations to look like. So for example, one of the stated policies of the federal Clean Water Act is uh, to make all waters fishable and swimmable by 1983. So that was quite a lofty goal when they passed it in 1972. But you can see how that like set the stage for what uh, Congress kind of wanted our waters to look like. And then law sets the enforceable rules or standards for how we're going to achieve that policy. And so going back to the Clean Water Act, Discharges into certain waters require a permit, right? That's one way that we can help clean it up is by monitoring what's going into the waters. And then science provides ideally the knowledge that should be the foundation of those policies and that legal framework. So science is essential to informing the decision making. You know, we can't know if our discharge permits are working to clean up the water if we don't have researchers studying and monitoring those waters. So they are all absolutely interconnected and we love that the law center can work at that interface of all three.
2: And I think just generally, people don't realize how much lawyers work with other disciplines and and other areas as well. Mm -hmm. So you know, you you are the National Sea Grant Law Center, but Mm -hmm. you do things for Mississippi and the coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, what, What are some of the specific issues National Sea Grant Law Center is working on in Mississippi.
0: Yeah, so our work for Mississippi has primarily focused around oysters. And for our listeners at the coast, uh, we know like Biloxi used to be the oyster capital of the world. Oysters are very important um, to the state. And so we have focused on both uh projects related to oyster reef restoration and the wild harvest of oysters, as well as the developing aquaculture industry around oysters in Mississippi. So we've worked with a team of researchers here at the University of Mississippi that was looking at environmental stressors like freshwater inputs or increases in pH Um, on different life stages of oysters. So do baby oysters respond differently than like adult oysters, which is a really interesting project, which I can talk more about. Um, But then, as I mentioned, we've also been looking at oyster aquaculture. Um, But this year, the legislature in Mississippi actually passed a new law that privatized 80 percent of the public oyster reefs in Mississippi and made them available to be leased to private individuals, so that's a major legal change and policy change in the state of Mississippi that the Law Center has been tracking and doing outreach on
1: I'm so glad that you mentioned some of the history of the National Sea Grant Law Center, and you know when it was founded i i'm I would bet a lot of millennials and younger if I said. That Indian cried because of the river. They wouldn't know, know the context of the the commercial that used to be on television so frequently. And uh, if you said Cleveland's burning, they might not know what that meant. And I, I think it just goes to, I mean, it's from the last 40 years, it's obvious that without government intervention, uh, you know, the corporations weren't, Taking care of things uh, as it was, so I'm very interested to see uh, talk and learn about what all the work of the National Sea Grant Law Center and what our guest uh, Professor Stephanie Showwater Alts will share with us. And we also have a curious caller from Madison. We've got Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question?
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me on and everything too. Um, I was wondering how climate change has affected the laws that are on the books up to this point in time, and I guess the other follow-up thing is, you feel that the laws are adequate to address the uh, the already present threat that it poses. Oh yeah, thanks, Jonathan. That's a great
0: question. So. Um, I will start by saying there's a little bit of a difference. Um, If you use law, big picture law, we have seen some implementation of climate adaptation and mitigation in uh, U.S. law. But most of it has happened on the regulatory level, meaning that the federal agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency or uh, FEMA for disaster relief or even the Department of Defense, the Navy has done a lot, but that's all happening like at the regulatory level and Congress hasn't passed a lot of overarching legislation that would actually um, empower um, a new legal framework to address um, climate change threats in a holistic way. So it's been very piecemeal and it's been very on the regulatory level. And that also means that a lot of those actions that the agencies have taken to address climate threats have been challenged in court as being outside their authority or beyond what Congress Provided. So we're in a bit of a stalemate um, in some respects for moving ahead with um, a really targeted climate. Changes in the law because of the way our political system is kind of working right now, uh, but there are lots of changes on the uh, local, especially on the local level. Um, many communities, even though they might not refer to them as climate change or climate adaptation, all along the coast, the coastal uh, municipalities are taking a lot of action to address floodplain risks and make it safer to live in their communities, um, requiring elevation of buildings, increases in wetlands protection. So um, I think we are taking action. Is it adequate to address the threat? No, you know, it's such a huge threat and there's so many different challenges, but we are starting to see baby stuff.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. We appreciate you calling in. You can send us your email questions. Legalterms at mpbonline.org is our email address. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. So October 2nd through October 8th, 2023 is Climate Solutions Week. Reporting teams from across the NPR network have been searching the world for solutions to climate change. MPB is sharing what was found all this week on our national programs. So if what happens to our water is important to you, you will enjoy listening to MPB this week. We are talking about the work of the National Sea Grant Law Center with our guest, Professor Stephanie Showwater Otz from the University of Mississippi School of Law.
2: Professor uh, Otz, here with us. I mean, one of the focuses of the National Sea Grant Law Center uh, is environmental literacy and workforce development. We talked. talked a little bit about the fact that there's some economic impacts as well. You know that that y'all deal with. Can you please tell us why it's important and how lawyers and law students get involved in the project?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, environmental literacy, uh, to me, is just a fancy way of saying that individuals are aware and have a basic understanding of humans, our connection um, to and impacts to the wider natural world. Right. Um, for areas in which the law center works, this also includes ocean and climate literacy. So, understanding fundamental comments uh, concepts about the functioning of the ocean and the climate so that we can make informed decisions about the ocean and the use of its resources, as well as the risks of living in coastal areas, whether that's from storms or sea level rise. And so it's critical that law students and practicing lawyers are environmental ocean and climate literate in order to, um, give the best representation to their clients that they can, whether those are federal and state agencies, private companies, or property owners. Um, I always think attorneys working with clients to close real estate deals or develop coastal property should really understand the flood risk of that property when they're representing their clients. And that is not as common as we would maybe think or want to believe. And so part of um our workforce development is to provide experiences and training to law students so they understand these dynamics in the coastal area, so if they're working with clients, they can understand um, how these are all connected and tend to better represent their
2: yeah and in terms of workforce development how, you know what what exactly is that and how 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 does the center have an impact on law you know, enforcement?
0: Yeah, so we try to bring students kind of all the way through. We do. Uh, we work some with undergrad students who are interested in policy or law, and so I'm currently working. Um, supervising uh, honors student on a thesis that's looking at drinking water um, issues like trying to compare Flynn and what's been going on in Jackson. Um, I I teach with Dr. Christy Willard and the School of Pharmacy honors college classes about water. And so we hope that that like seeds interest um, in undergrad students to look at law and policy as a possible field. And then once they come here to the University of Mississippi, uh, we teach courses Um, I have taught ocean and coastal law, which is the foundational course um, about domestic and international frameworks over our oceans. But uh, Catherine Janicey, one of the senior staff attorneys with the National Sea Grant Law Center, she teaches water law. Uh, agricultural law, uh, fishing game law, which is all about like conservation and fishing and hunting uh, regulations. So we try to give the students that knowledge. And then we also work with students during the semester and the summer, um, engage them on our research projects so they get applied experience working on these issues, and then hopefully uh, send them out to get a job um, working in this field if they want to.
2: And I want to brag on you on a second because one of the other things you've done uh, is coach, co-coached a team, a blue court team, environmental law blue court team, national team that won the championship several years
0: ago. Okay. <laughs> yes.
2: So uh, you know you're doing great things uh, with our students, and you know I think it's a, you know lawyers have lots of different opportunities, but I think certainly in, in an era of climate change, um, environmental law is going to be increasingly should have already been this, this important, but increasingly important. Mm-hmm. Now you, um, also host a webinar, uh, and uh, what topics do you cover and who's your, the audience and how people, how can people access that webinar?
0: Yeah, so we do. We do an annual webinar series. It's actually completely open to the public. Um, The best way to find out is follow us on social media. I guess X now, former Twitter. (laughs) Um, But And our website always announces when our next webinar is going to be. Um, It is intended for non-attorneys. Our primary audience, um, so there's 33 other Sea Grant programs around the country, and that's our audience. We want to help uh, Sea Grant. grant personnel around the country, kind of stay informed about hot topics and what's going on. And so this year we've done webinars on federal fisheries management and whether, you know, how effective and efficient the different management councils are around the country. We did a webinar on the sargassum bloom in the Caribbean, um, which has had huge environmental and economic impacts and some of the legal responses to that. We did a Supreme Court term roundup and preview um, for environmental cases in the current Supreme Court. So we do a lot of different things and yeah, you're welcome to join.
2: Well, it's, it's impactful because I think, you know, we, again, we talked a little bit about, about before the show about, what I think that we don't realize is the economic impact that climate change is gonna have um, and and how that's gonna, uh, it, it's affecting so many things. And so. Um, you're bringing attention to that I think it's really important um and something that that people need to listen to in my opinion right? you know um, it's all around us but um well it, so do you when you how often do you do those webinars do you,
0: Yeah, so we try to do at least 60 years, so they're usually every other month, but sometimes, you know, like, we might do a few, like, like at the end of the year, you try to avoid the holidays, right? Um, But our next one is in November, and actually, it's going to be on something that is probably of interest to Mississippi uh, listeners. I'm going to be talking about the... Uh, implications of the listing of the rice's whale in the Gulf of Mexico on the endangered species list. So this is a very small population of whales, maybe under 50 whales in the Gulf of Mexico that was recently listed under the Endangered Species Act, and there has been a lot of uh, uh, regulatory action around that to list their critical habitats. Um, there has been some action on the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to change the way oil and gas vessels are operating in the Gulf of Mexico um, to protect the whale. And there's a proposal to set a speed limit for commercial vessels, which is uh, quite controversial. They uh, comment they got 75,000 comments on the proposed regulations, which for the non-lawyers out there is a huge amount of comments on some regulation. And so there's a lot of debate um, because it's a very small population that was only recently discovered. Um, but yeah, so that'll be in November, um, kind of going through the history, uh, the science of that, the discovery and like how they they determined that if this was a unique species, as well as the, the legal pieces.
1: I find this, you know, just fascinating, especially coming at this discussion of what all the National Sea Grant Law Center does. Coming from, you know, Mississippi, where we do pride ourselves on uh, nature and water and fisheries. The you know, with the Mississippi River and all the, the tributaries, all the rivers that we have, and how the coast is such an important part of our state economically and recreationally and, you know, just where somebody's house is, all of these laws make such a, a personal impact on so many Mississippians. Speaking of Mississippians, we've got one from Horn Lake on the phone. David's calling in. David, we're glad that you've called in to In Legal Terms Today. We're talking about the work of the National Sea Grant Law Center with our guest, Professor Stephanie Showalter-Otz. What is your comment or question? I'd
3: like to ask a question about uh, blood zoning uh, disclosures. If you're out shopping for a new home and you go on the subdivision, do I have to disclose the flood risk? So that's a
0: great question. How, how, how do you find your flood risk if
3: you go looking for
2: a home in a subdivision?
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, um, that, those are very great questions, and it is actually harder um, for property owners in the northern part of the state to find out their flood risk, unfortunately, than in coastal areas, but. Uh, No, uh, it's my understanding in Mississippi that there's no legal requirement to disclose the flood flood risk for um, future owners. Um, But um, you can look on, um, you should be able to look on the FEMA, the Federal um, Emergency Management Association. If you type in floodplain maps for Mississippi, um, you should be able to find floodplain maps for the entire state. Um, they might be a little hard to Google again if you're out of the coastal area. Um, but um, oh, and someone else on the um, in our call might have a little bit of information about a flood zone. <laughs> but um, thanks.
1: Yeah, I've been intimately uh, uh, in touch with a flood information for 27 years now. We live in the Jackson area. And when we bought our house, I, I believe it is on the seller disclosure statement, has the home ever flooded? And I know at least in the Jackson area, because there are quite a few homes that have been built in flood flood plump, flood prone areas you can call the uh, the city you can and they have they have a map and if you tell them your address they can tell you at what flood stage the Pearl River is when your house will flood so if you don't get uh, information from FEMA which every year when we get our, our, our FEMA statement—they tell us in 1979 a claim was made on your home, so we get that information recurring. And also, the city I happen to live in has excellent information on the on flood zones because it has, at least in the area I live in, has been studied so much. Uh, but with new construction. And in uh, rural areas, places that might not have flooded before, they might not have quite as specific as points of inches (laughs) of a river, uh, what their flood stage is and how that affects uh, real estate. But thanks, David. Uh, Good luck with you. And we appreciate you calling in today. You can email us your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershen is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. You'll be assured of being updated every time Abram Nanny, our podcast producer, uploads this show. You can also find MPB Think Radio recordings from the website for the station, mpbonline.org slash radio. We're talking with our guest, Professor Stephanie Showalter-Otz about the National Sea Grant Law Center, which provides education to policymakers, practitioners, and laypersons. I think that just about covers everybody. (laughs) The staff also responds to research requests from the legal community and state and federal agencies. And we always like it when our federal and state lawmakers use data, to uh, back up their suggestions and their laws. So we thank them for their effort and for all that they do for the state of Mississippi and the U.S. Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah,
2: <laughs> we really are. I think we're so fortunate here at the University of Mississippi is to have great programs like uh, the National Grant Law Center you know, that are really doing things uh, both academically but also practically for the state of Mississippi and the Gulf Coast. And, uh, and we appreciate their work. And, you know, uh, Stephanie, you and I were talking during the break about, like, when I was a kid, I would go to my grandmother's shack on the beach in Sullivan's Island, South Carolina, and we'd sleep on the floor and there was, you know, a shower. But that was it. You know, it was just to be, but now you, you go back to Sullivan's Island now and same thing with the, uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast. The development is really much more high end and, and there's a lot more of it. So, you know, rapid coastal development and, and what's, you know, and greater demands on fisheries resources and climate change and other human activities are leading to a lot of impacts on water quality, fish populations, wetlands lost. You know, so the National Sea Grant Law Center is working to promote ecosystem uh, based management to maintain vital habitat. So, why is that so important?
0: Yeah, so one, um, we people, humans are part of the environment, right? We're not separate from it. We need clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, functioning ecosystems that support the food that we grow um, and provide places for us to hunt and fish and play, um, whether it's going to the beach or enjoying a day in a forest. And so... Decisions about the uses of those resources have to take into account what the ecosystem or how ecosystems respond to these different changes and impacts. So what is a wetland going to do if you build a house right next to it? And um, it's also what's going to happen if you increase the amount of fish that you harvest in a particular year and how might that ripple throughout the um, environment and so ecosystem-based management is about understanding that these are not isolated decisions, but unfortunately the law tends to be like to use a buzzword, like stovepipes, right? You just have these columns. The Clean Water Act was about water pollution, the Clean Air Act is about air pollution. Um and you know, Safe Drinking Water Act is about drinking water, but uh, the quality of the water out in the environment affects the quality of the water that we're bringing into our water treatment plant, so everything's connected. So uh, we're trying to help um, by looking at the legal frameworks that we have, identifying where they're not seeing or addressing these connections, and kind of helping to work with different groups to identify how can we uh, better take that into account.
2: Yeah. and then we i mean and legal policy makes a big difference there you we were talking about um blood insurance mm-hmm. and there there is government uh supported funded blood insurance that's very inexpensive mm-hmm. uh that FEMA provides i mean i, I know it's 400 dollars, i think still um and so there's not a disincentive for somebody to put a multi-million dollar home right where a flood could be because they're gonna be insured pretty uh, cheaply. So, I mean, are those the kind of policies also that that the center would look on?
0: Yeah, so we have done, not like so much recently, there's been so many changes with flood insurance, but yeah, we do look at like, what incentives or disincentives does a legal framework provide to do this uh, or to achieve your goals? Right. And wetlands is going to be the new thing to really look at and is really important for Mississippi. So the last term we had a very big issue. Uh, Supreme Court decision, USB v. Sackett, where the Supreme Court really narrowed um, how the federal government can define waters of the United States for protection under the Clean Water Act. And so that could potentially really narrow the wetlands that are protected in the state. And Mississippi only has state law that protects coastal wetlands in the three coastal counties. We don't have any state law that specifically protects wetlands in the northern part of the state. And so there aren't really disincentives in Mississippi from filling a wetland, right? Well, and that can impact duck hunting and the quality flooding, right? You might get more flooding in a certain area if you fill a wetland and that water can't be retained there in that area. And so, yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces when it comes to flooding. That's not just flood insurance for coastal storms, but flooding inland as well.
2: It's, it's, it's so much, I mean, it's, it's all, they all relate together. And so what are some of the ways the law center's helping to address habitat restoration.
0: Yeah, probably our most recent project was the one I had mentioned earlier with uh, researchers here at the University of Mississippi uh, looking at oyster reef restoration. So the state of Mississippi has spent millions of dollars in recent years on oyster reef restoration projects. Um, Unfortunately, there hasn't been a wild harvest of oysters in Mississippi for several years um, because there's just not enough Healthy adult oysters on the reefs to sustain um, a harvest. And um, so the question is kind of like, why aren't these restoration projects working um, right now? We know one of the big reasons is the freshwater inflow from a couple years ago when they opened the Bonnie Carey spillway to kind of release all that flood water into Mississippi sound. So the Mississippi sound is not really in the best condition right now to support oysters, but it's still there's been a lot of effort and you would have thought there would have been some improvement. And so um, the team was looking at, well, maybe you're not taking into account the impact of these environmental changes on oysters in their earlier life stages. Um, So are the, larva like responding different um, so that they're not uh, settling out of the water and attaching to the reefs. Maybe the juveniles aren't surviving as well. Um, and so the, the researchers did find that um, they do respond differently to salinity changes or temperature changes depending on how old they are. And so I worked with the team to translate their research findings into a policy brief for state for the state legislature and state regulators about what does this mean for restoration projects and so one of the suggestions was maybe you grow oysters longer in your hatcheries on land before you put them out on the restoration reefs because they might survive better if they're older now that costs more money to keep them in the hatchery so there's some balances there but like that's an example of a project so interesting
2: you know well when you talk about uh, one of the things you talk about on your website is a living shoreline. What, what is a living shoreline?
0: Yeah, so living shorelines are a like shore, a shoreline erosion technique that is designed to mimic natural um, in kind of in more natural setting, right? So if anybody's been on the coast, you might see like an an actual seawall, right? A cement structure that is meant to control erosion. Well, that has significant environmental impacts because it prevents sand from moving to where it wants to go, and they can crumble. So the idea is to use something more natural, like maybe you try to use oyster shells, um, or some sort of seagrass to accomplish the same thing in a more natural environment. And so there have been efforts in Mississippi over the last decade or so to make it easier to permit living shorelines, because the default is a hard structure. And so that's one thing.
1: Richard, I want to go back to one thing you mentioned earlier uh, saying about the disincentive of flood insurance that kind of struck with me. So I pulled out my handy dandy Compounding interest calculator, and put in how much we've been paying for flood insurance annually for three, 000, three for twenty seven years with a two percent uh, just um, interest rate for inflation. And we could have paid for our house again. So, uh, going, if I had it to do back again, if something says it requires flood insurance, I'm heading the other way. But nobody listened to this when I go to sell my house. So don't pay any attention to that. But it's a, it's a lovely area. But, uh, if, if something requires flood insurance, you, you might want to think, uh, twice about purchasing that. In my personal experience. If you need
2: flood insurance for where we where our house is in Oxford, you probably need an arc because we're we're way up. So you know, um, we're not too worried about it.
1: Yeah, my husband loves driving by the the coast and seeing houses on stilts. He goes, Man. We, can, can you raise? We'll have to ask the uh, Fix-It crew on uh, Fix-It 101 on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. if you can raise a slab house uh, eight feet in the air. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we're not talking about that, but we will take your questions for our, our, this show. We take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Thank you for being part of our show in legal terms. If you have missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. Oh, my gosh. I am just all about YouTube. I love that you can listen to a show with the sound off and you can just see the closed captioning. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app as are most our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hey, at 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. We were very lucky to have the director of the National Sea Grant Law Center on uh, in legal terms with us in the past. That was Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019. So you can find that podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we're so very glad that Professor and Director Stephanie showalter Otts could join us today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join Professor Gershon at that uh, beautifully color-coded, uh, podcast studio at Ole Miss.
2: Well, it's great to be here in this in our in our studio. We appreciate the, the work of our library and also uh, our IT department in putting this together. And uh, but it, and it's great to have Stephanie back on the show. I mean, I, we're, we were talking about the fact twenty nineteen is a whole different world to go in a lot of ways. I mean, it really is. But. Uh, but, you know, we know fishing is an important industry in, in Mississippi. I, you know, I happen to like a good seaweed salad, but I think most people would rather be able to eat the fish. Um, and you know, with between the oil spill and overfishing and industrialization, I mean, that's had ne- negative impacts on our industry. You've already talked about oysters and can you talk a little bit about the, the impact and how the work of the National Sea Grant Center, uh, was affected? and has been working.
0: Yeah, and so the the law center um, does, like our work does change when we get these big um, kind of shocks. And so, yeah, I can't believe it's been so long, but um, I was probably, I guess maybe it was about a year, um, I was working here when Hurricane Katrina hit the coast and then the oil spill and of course, COVID. And so commercial fisheries in Mississippi um, are pretty well managed. Um, they are managed by federal and state agencies. They are considered sustainable um, and uh, the commercial fishermen have made a lot of sacrifices in recent years to deal with the reductions in harvest levels to keep them sustainable. Um, uh, But, They're, they're under a lot of economic pressure from imports, increases of gas. And so the, the law center just tries to help by answering questions, um, providing information about federal relief programs. That's a lot of what we did in COVID was just trying to answer questions about whether commercial fishing vessels can qualify for certain relief programs there. Um, yeah. And so that type of trying information sharing and connecting uh, people to the practicing attorneys that might be able to help.
1: Ooh, information sharing and connecting people to experts. That's that's MPB. Let's <laughs> go to our last call on the road in Natchez. It's Lauren. Lauren, thanks for calling in to in legal terms today. What's your comment or question?
3: Um, I had a couple one was um, we recently purchased a house in Jackson, and um, I got used to using realtor dot com they have um, um, pretty much every house listing they have um, a description of the flood risk um, on the on the listing itself, so oh. that was very helpful in comparing listings you know i tended to go for ones that didn't have any risk. Um, That was one thing. And then the other thing was uh, international fisheries. Um, I had uh, read something recently where they've had a couple of instances uh, in both Norway and Iceland where uh, salmon fisheries, the farmed salmon, got loose and were going upstream to spawn. Um, with the wild salmon, and there are a lot of problems with that um, that could lead to extirpation of the wild salmon because uh, the farm ones have fish life, and um, they also have a different life cycle. They um, mature more quickly, so then if they breed with the wild ones, Um, The wild ones won't be able to, um, they won't be sexually mature at the same time as um, the rest of the wild population. The crossbreeds wouldn't. And so it could further diminish the wild fishery.
1: Thanks for sharing that with us, Lauren. Uh, We went to uh, Alaska this summer and saw a salmon hatchery. And that was so interesting that they had their own Salmon ladder. They they put in the barrier to get the 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 fish that I guess that grew up there that have that same brackish type of water to help them uh, get back in. But yeah, in 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 Mississippi fisheries are are quite important, aren't they, Stephanie?
0: Yes. Yeah. And um, just to thank you so much, um, Lauren, for that, that information. And uh, we have had, we have similar concerns here in the United States with salmon aquaculture. Uh, it was before COVID, but there was an unfortunate event um, in the Pacific Northwest where a uh, net pen collapsed and did release uh, fish into the environment. Luckily they, they believe they harvested most of them and the rest like, didn't survive but there have been those issues um, in british columbia as well um, and other places so many states actually around the country require that you only use native species in aquaculture to reduce that risk of threat of course here in mississippi we're not doing yet um, fin fish aquaculture so the oysters aren't moving around and you don't have quite as much threat but they are using native species again so um, the, that uh, just to say that the regulators are aware of that, and the law is does have provisions to try to reduce the risk from aquaculture in the United States from those types. Of things. What is the
1: what does aquaculture mean?
0: Oh yeah, so aquaculture means the growing of a crop in an aquatic environment, right? So agriculture is growing crops on land. Aquaculture is on in water. Um, you'll sometimes also hear the word mariculture. So, if you were in Alaska, they might have been talking about mariculture. Uh, that is sometimes the preferred term for growing crops like in an ocean environment. I personally think aquaculture is just easier to use generically. But of course, we have catfish aquaculture in Mississippi. That's pretty important. And now we're moving more into the marine environment. But the National Sea Grant Law Center also has several large projects about seaweed aquaculture. <laughs> Chris, um, and uh, developing new food safety regimes as more states start to develop seaweed aquaculture industries here in the couple.
1: Well, Richard, one of my kids loves seaweed snacks. I think that's going to be my homework for the the week. I'm going to see if I can find a seaweed snack and taste it. I wonder if they'll have that at the state fair. <laughs>
2: it's, it's, it's not, but it's high, It is highly nutritious and really tasty. So uh, you know. Um, you yeah, haven't tried. I think it's worth trying, but I, I think it's interesting that now states are getting involved in seaweed aqu- aquaculture as well. Mm-hmm. Um And you know, you you mentioned Katrina. You you've been here. You were here during the oil spill as well, and and that had to impact uh, the center a lot.
1: Oh, Richard, yeah, so, we don't have time to talk about that. We'll just we'll have to get Stephanie back uh, for uh, another time. Stephanie, show Walter Ottz. We so appreciate you making time for us and for all of our listeners today. Thank you so much for coming.
0: No, thank you so much for having me, and the time went so fast, so that's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for all the callers, and their great questions.
1: That's going to wrap us up for this In Legal Terms. Our team consists of board engineer and podcast producer Abram Nanny, and our phone screener today was Jermaine Flood. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.